When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Frank Murray, uh, one of the uh, limited number of pilots that flew the CIA operation Oxcart, flying the A-12 Mark III Plus photo recon airplane in the 60s. You are listening to the Dr. Sky Show. And listen to my interview at photorecon.net. CIA Project Oxcart, the A-12 Archangel, the fastest and highest, flying, air-breathing plane ever. The CIA's Lockheed A-12 Archangel first flew in April 1962 at Groom Lake in Nevada. Fifteen A-12s flew 2,850 flights at Groom Lake. Three A-12s flew 29 surveillance missions in 1967 through 1968. Twenty-six overseas and three over North Korea during Operation Black Shield. The six CIA A-12 pilots flying Black Shield missions were Ken Collins, Jack Layton, Frank Murray, Dennis Sullivan, Mel Bovidich, and Jack Weeks. Each of them was awarded the CIA Intelligence Star for Valor, and two A-12 pilots were killed. Walter Ray and Jack Weeks. The A-12 was the first of a family of Blackbird planes, including the YF-12. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that we call the Dr. Sky Show with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and so many celebrity guests in the mix. It's a privilege and honor to welcome today to the microphone CIA pilot Frank Murray, whose call sign shall forever remain Dutch 20, and his A-12 experience at Groom Lake, Nevada. Mr. Murray, it's a high honor to be here with you at your home here in Nevada. Thank you for being on the Dr. Sky Show today. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about the background that you have in aviation. I find it most fascinating. You know, a lot of us don't prepare when we're born to just say, as we come out into the world, oh, I'm going to be a pilot someday. (laughs) Tell us your story, and I'm grateful for your time today. Well, I guess in a nutshell, my brother was a professional in aviation. He was a War II combat pilot, and after that he was a commercial operator on his own right and then airline pilot for many years and retired from doing that kind of business. He was my mentor in aviation, I think, all the way along. Since I was a kid, I wanted to fly, like my brother. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> so I I had some guidance there, and my first instruction in flying was with my brother as in, uh, the instructor pilot. I went through uh, formal Air Force pilot training in 1952-53 period, and uh, finishing that training, I was selected to stay in the fighter side of piloting rather than going to bombers or transports or something. Yes. So I went into fighters, and I stayed in that field uh, as best I could. 
with every bone I had working for me. I avoided training, <laughs> training, training command, I mean, right. uh, bombers, transports, and things that weren't, uh, as I would say, fun to fly. I was, uh, I was more of a fighter pilot. Uh, numbers of years, uh, probably 10 years after uh, my initial training, along came the Oxcart project, the development program for the A-12 airplane. And I was initially selected into that program to be a military support chase pilot. Interesting. Not to be an A-12 pilot. I was brought in uh, because I had a lot of experience in the airplane that we're using for chase, the F-101 Voodoo. Yes. So they got me into that thing uh, for a few years, and uh, attrition of their own staff of A-12 pilots was starting to cut their numbers down to a point where they needed to train some others. And uh, somehow or other, I weaseled my way, if you will, <laughs> into going ahead and training on the A-12 to be a mission pilot on the A-12 airplane. I had a little help here and there, uh, getting a chance to even get selected for that. But I stayed with the program, that program, until the end of the Oxcart program in 68. And uh, when it was all over, I went back in the Air Force as an Air Force fighter pilot and stayed another nine years or so. It's a fascinating career. So, yeah. It's just fascinating. And I say that to you, sir, very humbly, because our viewers and the listeners that are listening to our radio show. We're about preserving living history. And you and I spoke off camera mm. about the importance of what we consider to be what slips through the fingers like sand grains if we don't preserve this. Yourself, and I know you're a very humble man and we're grateful for your time. We've said that many times, but you and a whole group of men, and I'm sure a lot of women behind the scenes in this particular time, did so much. I mean, when we think of the first flight of the Wright brothers, and look where we were at the time you flew the A-12 and then on to faster aircraft, or equally fast aircraft. It's just amazing. So what I wanted to outline in this particular interview today is your experiences with something called the A-12. For those that don't know this, tell us what this aircraft is, who developed it, and give us the time period that we're talking about, because it's an amazing story. Well, the A-12 development started when it was realized or recognized that the U-2 airplane, which had been our first uh, overflight spy plane, if you will, was vulnerable, it was felt to be vulnerable before we actually had one shot down over Russia in 1960. In 59, the contract was let with Lockheed to develop a better, more uh more adaptable safer airplane to do that same kind of mission which is overflight photography of uh, adversary countries people and whatnot sure so the a12 airplane got started in 59 before the first u2 was lost in 60 and it was a slow laborious project to build an airplane to go four times faster than the u2 uh, 10,000 or more feet higher and to do the same job of photography. So it was a monumental effort done by Lockheed under the leadership, of course, of Kelly Johnson, the probably the most skilled aeronautical brain of our time. Agree with you there. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, it finally worked. 
and we put the airplane to work. We were held back uh, for a number of years when the airplane was operationally ready, but not suitably poised uh, because of government, our own government restriction. Uh, I would have to say I think the State Department's uh, reluctance to use the airplane was borne out many times when they were part of stopping the use of the airplane whenever they could convince the president or whoever was in charge of the overflight program from not using it. Exactly. So they held it back for a while, but finally uh, the losses over North Vietnam to our recon airplanes, mainly the Navy uh, A-5 and the Air Force uh, RF-4, we're getting too much, and they decided we had something in the in the wings that we could use more safely, better, more agile, and with a greater resolution and much better swath coverage capability with the A-12 airplane. So it was put into use in 67 for the first time over there. And on the first mission, uh, Mel Vavidich flew it, he located about 70 SAM sites in one pass. That's incredible. And didn't have to go back and verify what he had. And he got them very well on the first. That was a typical result throughout the history of, uh, of all the missions we flew over North Vietnam, North Korea, Chinese border, and those places where we wanted to go with this airplane. So the, the A-12 airplane proved itself in the few years it was in use by performance. And it, there's uh, other airplanes have come since and probably very good airplanes. I'm not privy to how well they work or how sure. hard they are to fly Understand or any of that. But I do know we have other programs in place now. But the A-12 was sort of the leader of the pack of high resolution with safety, if you will, because... It hid in its speed and altitude capability. And faster than a speeding bullet, it's very difficult to shoot something down like that. If Most you definitely. You don't even know it's there. Absolutely. Now, this is a great story. And again, I'm so privileged and honored, and so are our audience, to be able to hear this story as we continue to talk about living history, ladies and gentlemen, here with DrSky.com, The Dr. Sky Show, and our many friends around the world at photorecon.net. One of the things I go back in the time tunnel, as I like to call it, Frank, is it's another gentleman that I'm sure you're very aware of. We've had an interview over the last four or five years. I was privileged and honored to speak to General Ray Haupt. And he was interesting because, just like yourself, he told me a story that the original series of A-12s, as they were flight testing them, and I just wanted to get more information from you, they did not have the advanced J-58 engines in those, if I'm correct. But he called his, or his was referred to as what, the Titanium Goose, I think? Or that something? was the trainer. The trainer for this particular Article program. 124. Interesting. So you knew him, of course, very well. Yes, uh, I worked with Ray. Interesting story. Talking more about the aircraft and, and the history of this particular program, give us the kind of zoomed-in time frame that we're talking about when this aircraft was in its early stages of testing. What year are we talking about, just so our audience can go back in time? First flight was in uh, 62 on the first airplane, which uh, Article 121 survives today. That's kind of rare for a first uh, developmental airplane. But it, it is in Palmdale on display, and it flew for years. 
and it, it did all the proof of uh, concept testing, all the performance, altitude, speed, the whole band of things like that was done with that one airplane. The, the program got into full swing as they started getting more and more A-12s from Burbank, where they had to be transported in a box, if you will, yes. to the area and put back together up there to get them ready to fly. And the the program, not without hitches along the way as any program, because so much of that whole thing had to be invented at, at that time. Mm-hmm from the metals and the fuels and the engine. And as Dr. Skye said, we started out that program, the airplane was ready for flight test before the engine was. That's amazing. The, the design wow. engine wasn't yeah. ready yet. Pratt & Whitney was still working it. Sure. So they put in a smaller yet powerful engine, but they put a smaller engine that was not really designed for that use nor could it use the recovery of the duct. The air intake system was designed for the bigger engine. So it flew with some penalty with smaller engines, but we, could, we were able to get the airplane in the air and get it out to about Mach 2, which is not bad, but uh, the airplane's designed for 3+. plus. So the, the J-58 engine made it easy later when it was serviceable in use, and the J-75, the first engines flown, uh, did what they could. We say they soldiered on as good as they could. That was the engine of the 105 and the 106. There a couple of airplanes that easily went Mach 2 with that same engine. Yes. So it was a qualified Mach 2 engine, but not anywhere near good enough to go on to 3. It couldn't do it. Amazing. Sir, if you'd be kind enough to talk about the ranch. I mean, people today think they know when they say Area 51, and you know all the stories about that. Mm-hmm. But from a serious aeronautical conversation with you, one, of course, that maybe you're still under the rule of uh, secrecy. We totally respect that. Uh, this nation and other nations around the world, I'm sure you would agree, have to have secret facilities in order to test whether they be aircraft or other type of weapon systems or other mm-hmm. projects. But describe to us... What do you feel, this the entire ranch, when I say that, I'm referring to what I consider the Groom Lake area mm-hmm. of Southern Nevada. Take us back in time and just talk about that. It was pretty much pretty rustic, I'm sure, when it first started. You had construction crews building what? Very crude. And then it started off like a city. And it evolved into something that even today is quite miraculous. Talk about that, being there. Well, Area 51 got its name, Area 51, not from our project or anything to do with the development of airplanes. It was just a numbered area of the atomic energy test uh, complex down there, the Nevada test site. Yes. So there was area everything I can think of. I drove through 12 all the time, and uh, and of course, uh, all of those places when I was driving to work from Las Vegas, to get to the area, I went through those things, and they were, they were uh, the 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 ranch as we call it sometimes. Area Fifty One mm-hmm. uh, started its development in the days of the U two airplane. So a few years before we got there, in uh, first parts of Oxcart moved in there in nineteen sixty one. And when they moved in, it ran the U-2 guys off because they didn't want a new airplane developed where there was an operational ongoing program like the U-2 program. So 
They chased the U-2 people out and sent them down to Edwards North Base, uh, which is, they probably didn't complain too much. They never did develop 51 to be what it ended up even while I was there. Interesting. And I, and I have no idea how well it is today. It's sure. far ahead of what we had. But so far as an operational secure place, it was great. You had a great big dry lake. If you couldn't land on the runway, you could always go land on the lake. That's no Because problem. it was easy to see from the air. I mean, yeah, it was a, it, right. a big, several-square-mile sure. dry lake, hard as a tabletop. Mm -hmm. A beautiful place for you know, for those reasons. For testing airplanes, it was ideal. Right. For a place to live five days a week like I did for five years, I didn't care for that a whole lot. No family man would. And i got to ask you, and excuse me for interrupting, that still must be one of the most difficult things for a person who's going out to this very early generation so-called secret location, and yet you can't tell family what you're doing. Can't tell anybody what you're doing. It's amazing. I mean, and when they say, where do you work? We used to say the test site. <laughs> well, so did 25,000 other people that worked sure. at Mercury. Wow. So we were easily hidden in amongst that, and we drove through their test site to get to 51. We went all the way through it, all the way and out the north gate, and then another eight or ten miles, whatever it is, to 51. So living conditions must have been a little bit harsh. It was, uh, it was you know, it was better than tents. Right. <laughs> it was better. And the, I'll say one thing about 51. They had the best food and the best mess hall I've ever seen <laughs> anywhere. You deserved it. Well. <laughs> and the rest of the people. It was a, it was a great place to eat. <laughs> And I don't know if that history comes out with Folks, everybody who knows about that place. Frank Murray recommends the food <laughs> yeah. at the ranch. Yeah, that's right. I do. We're conducting a special interview here on the Dr. Sky Show. Heard around the nation and around the world. The Dr. Sky Show on various radio stations like big, the big news talk station in Phoenix, KTAR, thousands of radio stations around the nation. And you can, of course, hear this interview in its entirety if you're watching it. We appreciate that. Tell your friends and neighbors that... This particular archive, we're talking about living history with a very special guest, as all our guests are special. CIA pilot Frank Murray, his call sign shall forever remain Dutch 20. We're talking about his life and the development of the A-12, this particular aircraft that, in my opinion, Frank, wouldn't you agree, helped keep na this nation uh, secure? And without this and the people like yourself, who knows what kind of harm's way we would have been in. So we obviously mm -hmm. salute you and want to thank you for your service, first of all, in this particular interview today. We want to thank Frank Murray and all the people who, of course, are in the United States military and giving their lives to uh, this particular thing we call freedom and American exceptionalism. And i got to go off subject just for a minute here. I talk a lot on other shows about American exceptionalism. Mm. And I wanted you to tell me a little bit about what makes America special to you. This is important. Well... My view of America, of course, is as a professional military person. Yes, sir. I spent 29 years uh, of my life, mostly in the Air Force, but I had a five-year tour with the CIA, working with them, flying for them. That was a, an, an added bonus in my book, because not everybody got to do that. I'm that sure was a very did. hard program to even get near, and to get to fly there principal airplane, uh, you know, hard to imagine how lucky I felt to be able to, you know, get the chance to do that. Yes, that, sir. It was a great airplane with a great mission. 
And of course, it supported our country. It was designed and built to overfly Russia. But after the Powers incident in 1960, President Eisenhower told Khrushchev that we will never overfly your country again. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> yes. But we we continue the political to, side of the world. Right, right. We continue to fly Absolutely. satellites across them every day as mm-hmm. quick as and as often as we could get one up. Sure. But we didn't go back with things like the U two and it prohibited the use of the A twelve because of the presidential dictum on not doing that. But that didn't mean we couldn't use it around other places and and fly around the edges of things and look in. Mm-hmm with great long-range cameras, which we did at times when when it was opportune, we'd do that. And to be on those missions, uh, you know, it was, was almost a regular job because we did it all the time for a couple of years. And I got used to that, and it, and it no longer was uh, a nail-biting thing at all. You know, it was pretty much like going to work on Monday, you know. How about that? that was, it got down to a routine where it was kind of easy to do. Well, you say it so calmly, sir. And again, what's amazing to the aviation enthusiasts and people who love living history is that the point that I'm getting across to all of our viewers and listeners, not everybody got to do this. No. So there's something true. special, and, I'm, and I know you're a very humble man, but there's something very special about you and the other gentlemen that were part of this program And then I got a transition to the actual boots on the ground or the tires and the rubber meets the road story. You and other people in this program, as I said, helped keep America safe. And one of the most prolific stories, I was a young boy when I remember in 1968, as you're going to explain to us, an incident happened called the Pueblo incident. And without going through all the details, people can learn that if if they Mm -hmm. want to go into detail. But a gentleman who's passed on uh, to the infinite, God rest his soul, Jack Weeks, yourself flying these missions. Talk a little bit about the Pueblo incident, because this was very, very bad for this country if things were not uh, handled the way they were. I understood that President Johnson might have even had a nuclear option, as been reported from declassified information, that if our ship wasn't released or our people weren't released, this could have escalated like a Cuban Missile Crisis. So tell us your involvement Mm. in this particular story. Well, I was on uh, I was on station at the detachment in Okinawa where we kept the A12s overseas during the period of the Pueblo incident. And Jack Weeks who uh, flew the first mission over the Pueblo over North Korea looking for Pueblo uh was followed by me a couple of weeks later when we wanted to see a little bit more about that place. But anyway, the, the Pueblo thing, I wasn't privy to the political consequences mm-hmm. of sure. what the hell was going on. Understood. But I fully understood, and I saw what the agency did in response to that. Without any further direction from higher up, the director of the agency at the time, Richard Helms, decided to get his detachment at Okinawa ready. So he put the order down, get ready, and that meant get the airplanes ready, loaded cameras, crew into training, into uh, pre-flight, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly crew feeding special things that we had to do before those kind of missions. Sure. So we got ready before we had authorization to do it. And Helms and the CIA told central government then 
the what would amount to the National Security Committee today, or whatever they call themselves, was then the 303 Committee. They didn't have a National Security Board, per sure. se. They had a, a lot less people involved. Told them, we're ready to go. And uh, very shortly after, the president, I guess himself, told them, are you doing anything about it? And the CIA said, yeah, we're ready to go. We'll go find where they took it. Sure. We'll take pictures of it. And while we're at it, we'll take pictures of the whole damn country Good. and see what their posture is. And we'll, are they getting ready to do something else? Or right. what is this? Troop movements, tank movements, everything. aircraft, everything. Count, count the locomotives. You, co you, you covered the whole country. So when they released us to go, weeks flew that first three-pass mission. And uh, we located Pueblo. We also counted all their trains, planes, airplanes, SAM sites, factories at work, and a lot of snow on the ground. It was yes. January, you know, of uh, 1968. And uh, a few weeks later, I was still on station with Weeks at that time. They decided they wanted to have another look uh, over mostly the same paths. So I got the the nod to be the mission pilot on that one, and I flew it successfully, about the same kind of mission that Jack did. Sure. With no problems with the airplane. And uh, we did it one more time. A few months later, Jack Layton went back up there, and he flew another run on North Korea just to see what's going on. But Frank, that's an amazing responsibility that maybe the average person out there doesn't understand. You say it so calmly. You're in a single seat, A-12, you don't have an RSO like the other birds that came later. You have to do everything. So give us a description without compromising national security. How long were some of these missions from when you took off to go over North Korea? Long well, time, The right? Pueblo mission wasn't very long. Over oh, a short period. A little less than four hours oh, total. okay. All right. Total. I see. Three. I don't remember. Three, three and a half. But know. there's a lot for a man to do in that kind of It's right. The busiest thing mm -hmm. about the Pueblo mission mm -hmm. was short runs over a small country. The country sure. is a peninsula. We were going across the skinny side of the country, east to west sure. and back. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me I was in a turn more often than doing anything else because you'd go through and immediately do a 9270 and get ready for the second pass. Sure. You go through the second pass, you do the same thing again, another 9270 and get ready for the third pass. To run the camera on the active runs is no big deal. You know, just turn it on. But the, you get cues in the view scope, you know, about a certain distance to go to right. the next position, the next waypoint. Got to get those pictures. Turn right? it, well, yeah, that's, that's why you're, you're there. there. The right. only reason for the airplane is you to bet. take pictures. So. Reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. But the busy thing was the turnarounds. And it seemed to me that the whole mission was spent in a circle. And I was constantly turning and turning and turning to get these these passes done. I remember that part more than anything. Another thing I remember was these people were t on the, the North Vietnamese were apparently totally surprised and unaware that we were there. Mm -hmm. They never responded. They never brought up SAM Site 1. I never saw a thing on the raw gear, the radar homing and warning. Okay. Never said anything. It was like you're flying around Tucson or something. There was no response to us being there, Amazing. So you which owned, I liked. You well, know, you owned the sky. I knew, I right. knew damn well, mm -hmm. that, and we were high. Yes. We had a higher minimum penetration altitude up there than we did in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. 
they set the minimum pen to 80,000. Minimum altitude to go anywhere in there, 80,000 feet. 80,000 feet, ladies and gentlemen, that's incredibly high. I mean, yeah, 16 miles. That's pretty high. Yeah, but they, they set the min pen at 80, and it's normally 75 mm -hmm. for most places. And uh, so I went in about 85. Mm -hmm. I just added a little little altitude to it, sure. but they, they still did nothing. They were, that surprised me more than anybody. I think I was, the pilots are surprised more than the sure. the guys on the ground, you know, who are assessing the film. I wonder if they attacked and they didn't do anything. They didn't even know we were there. I was told later, post-mission, that the Chinese warned the North Koreans that you were being had. Wow. So it they, came from they, another source, not yeah, from North Yeah, the Koreans. China mainland radar saw us. Enough to tell them you're being had. And they still did nothing. So <laughs> that's, that's okay. Right. That's a free pass. But you did find the Pueblo. Yeah, well, of course. And they moved it, I understood, too, correct? That they moved it later. A few times. Yeah, they, right. they moved it. Mm -hmm. It was at Wonsan, and we mm -hmm. sent it on. The first pass was down Wonsan Harbor. And sure enough, there it was with its captured boats, the ones that got it, the gunboats that went out and grabbed it. But you can't see a lot of that from altitude in the viewfinder. You, yeah, yeah, you could see the boats, but you can't make out whether it's it or some other tug down no, there. This is an amazing story. For the camera can see it. I can't see it. I wish we had so much more time, but we're coming up to our first part of the interview here. And I appreciate what you're doing here, not only for our country, but for all of us out there, and particularly the fans who love the living history of the aviation world and all of our military. Mm -hmm. It's so important to, from our side that these stories be preserved. But in closing, this is what I'd like to say to you. And again, thank you for your service to our country. This is an amazing story. And it's just so interesting. You've written a couple of books that are published by Amazon, Once Upon a Time at Area 51 by Frank Murray. We'll bring that into the camera right now. The camera can see this. This is an amazing book that Everybody, right, Frank, who wants to get an understanding of the whole program in detail? Well, that's a few you know, aspects of it, yeah. Aspects. And then let me bring in very quickly another book that I find interesting. It's entitled Oxcart Convoy, How They Got to Area 51, another book by Frank Murray, which is just interesting. These are easy-to-read books, and as I'm thumbing through them here, Frank, right now, I can just mostly say Mostly pictures. Mostly pictures, which, <laughs> what? Tell a story. What do they say, Frank? A picture's worth a thousand words, but... I'd rather listen to Frank and not just talk about the pictures. But this is interesting, Frank. You're humble. You were rewarded the CIA's award. This is a Valor Award. Congratulations mm -hmm. to you and the other pilots. Describe briefly. we got about a minute and a half. What is that award? And then I'd like to close off about how you delivered that article back when the program did end. And the words that I say are emblazoned forever. You brought that airplane back, and it was green when I parked it. So yeah. in other words, you brought it back as good as you started and you gave it back to the government. But CIA medal, what is it? Tell us who gets it and, and why did you receive it? Well, they don't have a lot of medals at CIA, I think. They they have a big bronze gong that they gave us. And I call it a gong, which is a, <laughs> a military right. vernacular for a medal. There you go. But anyway, it's a, it's a large bronze thing called the Intelligence Star. And there's several levels of that. The one we got was the one the pilots got awarded by CIA at the end of the program was the one for valor. They've, other, they've got others for service or I don't know what. Most time in the mess hall, who knows. 
I'm, I'm kidding. I want, of course, but I want, I want to salute you, and so does everybody watching this. You know, thanks to David Budd and Joe Cates, and of course, our never-ending story of talking about individuals just like our special guest, CIA pilot Frank Murray. He's here, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, right in the flesh, living history here at DrSky.com, The Dr. Sky Show, and PhotoRecon.net. His call sign shall forever be, and we talk about this very seriously, Dutch 20. He returned the airplane back to the owners of the airplane, the article. Well, he brought it back green when I parked it. I'm Dr. Sky, thanking you for this exciting edition, at least we believe so, of the Dr. Sky Show. Thank you so much. Special thanks to our special guest, CIA pilot, Frank Murray. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.